Well, I invite you for the last time in our study to the gospel according to Mark. The gospel according to Mark. Our text this morning is the very end of the book of Mark. Mark chapter 15, verse 40 to Mark chapter 16, verse 8. And yes, I am not going to read uh, verses 9 to 19 as they were not part of the original gospel. More on that momentarily. But our text this morning is Mark 15, verse 40 to Mark 16, verse 8, the very final end of Mark's gospel. The title of the sermon is A Remarkable Ending, A Remarkable Ending. We started this study on Valentine's Day, 2021, and we finished today uh, some almost 50 sermons later. And it's taken us a while to get through Mark, but I know for me the journey has been worth the the, the study and the, the benefit of just looking at Christ as we've been doing at Big Church lately uh, has been uh, really glorious. So thank you for joining us through this, this adventure. As you find your way to the very end of the book of Mark, I'll remind you that the final line, or maybe to uh, the people in this room, the final, the final scene in a movie is usually... Um, very important, to say the least. Uh, it can make or break a film. Uh, when they test a film, they usually will show different endings to different audiences and, and try to get the, the response and see how people react. Uh, sometimes very divergent endings are, are given to a, a film, uh, and usually there's some kind of payoff at the end to try to uh, bring the whole thing together as a, a piece of art. Uh, literature, I think, is different because it's such a slow burn. There's not a visual but an imaginative approach. And the most famous lines in uh, works of literature uh, are well-known and probably not as, as debated as film endings are. In fact, I was thinking about the end of the book of Mark and what sort of an end it was, and it made me think of, of the most memorable uh, final lines that I've ever read. Probably, I listened to The Invisible Man when I was cutting grass in college. Uh, that's not a marijuana reference. That was a, a landscaping uh, job. But uh, I, I, The Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison, kind of an a important work in the you know, civil rights movement. He wrote it in the 50s. Uh, it's this kind of wild narrative, cryptic, enigmatic uh, of this man's consciousness as he tries to survive in a society where he is, he is someone else. And at the end, he says memorably, it is this which frightens me, who knows but that on the lower frequencies, I speak for you. He was the object of so much hate and vitriol, and then at the end, you have this moment of realization where his voice is not just his voice, but he represents countless people who are in the same position as he is. Uh, maybe you read Frankenstein by Mary Shelley, or maybe you just know that a Frankenstein is a monster, but as the monster realizes the creature 
of uh, this creation, this freakish thing with his yellow skin and the watery eyes and the bolts and the stitches as he comes to the point as far as he could reason that he doesn't exist in this world in Mary Shelley's masterpiece. Uh, the final line is, is him giving this gift of life that he was given back to humanity because he cannot be there anymore and he drifts off uh, alone to his death. And it has this haunting end. He was soon borne away by the waves and lost in darkness and distance. And then probably most famously in my reading and in my memory is the end of that book, Animal Farm. I first read it in middle school and then again in high school. And for some reason, that book stuck to, with me like no other book, probably because of my fear of totalitarian regimes. But um, I, I just I remember that, that poignant scene at the end that Orwell composed where this, the, the fear and concern that you've grown to love all these weird little farm creatures. And you know that you cried because, well, I didn't cry, but some people cried when Boxster went to the glue factory. I, just, I cried. Uh, but you're, you wonder, what's going to happen to Mario? What's going to happen to Joseph? What's, what's going to go on in this, in this farm? And, and these, these pigs have you know, taken over to usurp the uh, de- despicable humans, and, and in the end, they become just like them. And the final line of Animal Farm it says, Twelve voices were shouting in anger, and they were all alike. No question now what had happened to the faces of the pigs. The creatures outside looked from pig to man, and from man to pig, and from pig to man again. But already it was impossible to say which was which. Love that line. And it brings that satire against uh, the political regime to a fitting conclusion to show uh, what happens when bad men are in charge or pigs. So those are, those are just some examples of how poignant and important an ending is. And it's absolutely true in the literature that's before us today, inspired by the Holy Spirit, penned by a young disciple by the name of Mark, who benefited from the eyewitness testimony of Peter himself. Mark chooses to close his gospel in a remarkable way, a way that at first glance seems incomplete or cut off or lacking But on more careful identification, I want to show you why it truly is remarkable. Starting in Mark 15, verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance, describing Jesus' death on the cross. The centurion had just said in verse 39, Truly this man was the Son of God as Jesus breathed his last and died. The women looking on from the distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who is also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. 
Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was past, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was a very large stone. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. This is the very word of the living God. No appearance of the resurrected Lord in Mark's gospel. No great commission. No restoration of Peter. No ascension to heaven. There's so much that we've grown to expect with our familiarity of the gospel stories and of the book of Acts that to end the gospel of Mark after so much focus on the life and ministry and power of Jesus with a group of women trembling and afraid and then seeing fades to black has caused many readers to be confused about Mark's intentions. In fact, some of you are cheating forward because you see that little bracket in the text that says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. And so I think it's appropriate that at the very outset of trying to show you why this is a remarkable ending, I would like to begin, point one, by telling you that this is a remarkable footnote. A remarkable footnote. And that sounds like something uh, for seminarians, and, and it's not. I think it's something that can give you real confidence in Mark's ending and why it's so special. Uh, if you read verses 9 through 20, you won't find anything uh, unusual. You'll find things that you could find anywhere else in the Gospels. Uh, but apparently, uh, it was necessary Uh, for some readers to add something to the end of Mark's gospel. And so your Bible has a footnote there that explains that the verses that follow verse 8 were not included in the original or oldest manuscripts as far as we can tell. 
Uh, my footnote in the ESV Bible uh, says this. Um, and that is a really tiny footnote in this Bible. Some manuscripts end the book with 16.8. Others include verses 9 through 20 immediately after verse 8. A few manuscripts insert additional material after verse 14. One Latin manuscript adds after verse 8 the following. But they reported briefly to Peter and those with him. After all they've been told, after this, Jesus himself sent out by means of them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. Other manuscripts include the same wording after verse 8, then continue with verses 9 through 20. Uh, That's the the, uh, squint print, as they call it. And it really does require such a thing. So tiny... And so remarkable. You don't encounter a lot of that in your Bible. Sometimes you'll find a bracket of a word or two or three words, and and I'm not sure you know what that means. And so I want to help you just briefly, a little bit of a Sunday school lesson here, on something called textual criticism. And I think I'd start just by saying this. You understand that your Bible, your English Bible, is a translation. And when Mark wrote this gospel, there was no such thing as English. Maybe there was like early proto-English, like in barbarian tribes, but it was like, uh, go, 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 which is not that different than English sounds now. But there was no English, and so what we're working with, with our English Bibles, is a translation. Now, we understand that at one point in history, Mark wrote this down, and we covered why we think the author was genuine, why it was Mark, in our earliest sermon on this book. Papias, the church father, talks about him getting the source from Peter, etc., etc. But understand that at one point in this, Mark had written this with his own hand or with the assistance of an editor, but he had written it down and there was one copy. It's what Bible scholars would call the original autograph. The papyrus, the manuscripts. From there, copies would have been made. And this is something we could say that's true of all the books of the Bible, written in an original language. There was one copy. Our understanding of how inspiration works, the Holy Spirit doesn't dictate. That's like Mormonism and Islam, where uh, the recipient just says that they heard the words exactly from a voice in heaven and they just wrote them down verbatim. That's not what the doctrine of inspiration is in the Christian faith. Christian scripture is inspired. The words of Peter are holy men of old were moved along by the Spirit, maintaining the writer's personality, his intellect, his, his style, but being led by the Spirit of God to write down exactly what God wanted him to record, this incredible inspiration of Scripture led to one perfect manuscript, which was then copied as it was shared among the Christians. In John MacArthur's sermon on Mark 16, he does a superb job. It was his last sermon in the New Testament. I remember it as clear as if it was this morning, uh, as I sat in church and, and heard him uh, give that sermon, it was, it was this, the, the emphasis that MacArthur made as he looked through this was because of this reality of the copies of Scripture and because of how Christians viewed Scripture and valued Scripture, there was nothing that they were more serious about, nothing that they were more protective of. They were guarded and precious copies 
And as the church grew and spread, there was a pressing need for more copies of the letter to the Ephesians, a letter that was intended to be circulated among all the churches in Asia Minor, or of of John's Apocalyptic, or of Mark's Gospel, or of John's Gospel, or of Luke's Gospel. And so that original manuscript, first passed among the churches and protected and guarded by these Christians, would have been carefully copied down in the age before copy machines and computers and, and scanning on your iPhone. And so what the original said was the inspired manuscripts. I think it would help if you pictured in your mind a family tree. You know what a family tree looks like, right? You got Meemaw and Pawpaw at the top or whatever, right? Here, picture in it. And then Meemaw and Pawpaw have, I don't know, six kids. Seems like a nice, healthy number. And from there, those six kids have, you know, six kids each. And then those... 36 kids have, I'm not going to do that because that's hard math again. Remember one math class in college, it was called the art of math. I knew I was in the right place when I saw the University of New Mexico, the Harvard of the Southwest, entire football team in the room. So I said, this, this is my math class. So you have a family tree. Instead of at the top of having me, ma, and pawpaw, I want you to put that original manuscript, that first inspired, written by the author, inspired by the Holy Spirit document. And then it would have been copied a bunch of times. Throughout the ages, it would have been copied, reproduced and distributed. Now, you could see where someone along the way switches some letters or adds an extra word. If you've ever copied down something by hand, this has happened to you. You've, you've jumped a line before. You've repeated something. You had to scratch it out and rewrite it. And you know what that's like. Now, ancient copyists were incredibly precise, but mistakes would happen down the family tree line. And sometimes they were subtle enough that they weren't noticed by the copyists down the family tree. And so an error in this manuscript would spread among this family of manuscripts. Now, the work of textual critics is what they're called, and that's not just a Bible thing. All literature involves textual criticism, all ancient literature, is the science of comparing all the known copies of a document to discover what that original document said. And so if you have an error on this document that will mark with red and then all the ones underneath it have a red mark on them, but you have all these other families that don't have that red mark, that's an indicator to a textual critic that the original is likely related to this part of the family tree. Likewise, multiple errors in multiple copies down the generations of manuscripts can be traced back to compare and contrast to make a good scientific guess of what the original document said. Now, when we're talking about the Bible, we're talking about something that was translated, not just in its original language, but to Syriac and to Latin something that was used by the churches, like the way I'm using the Bible today, that church fathers for the first centuries of the church would preach the Bible, and their sermons were written down. And when they would read the Bible, they would write down the the transcripts of their sermons that people were taking down, would write down the the quotes from the Scriptures. And this is true of, of, again, all literature of the old world. This is true of English literature. This is true of Shakespeare. We don't have any original copies of Taming of the Shrew, but we know what Shakespeare wrote because of all the copies that we do have. 
Well, Shakespeare and all other ancient literature wasn't treated as precious as Scripture was. And so when we see the church fathers like Clement and Origen and Cyprian, that they don't have in their copies of Mark, verses chapter 16, verses 9 following, we understand that that must have been a later addition. Some, I'll describe what probably happened. Some well-meaning scribe somewhere down the line of that family tree making copies of the gospel of Mark to distribute to the churches. Some well-meaning scribe read this line, for they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And went, huh? I mean, whatever, you know, the ancient equivalent of huh is. He found it incomplete. And so he, knowing the book of Luke, knowing the book of Acts, knowing the gospel of John, tried to fill in the gap and add a little bit more, uh, some clarification about who Mary Magdalene was, verses 9 through 11, Uh, an appearance of of resurrected Jesus to his disciples. Uh, That was... In all the other accounts, why don't we add that as well? And then the most important marching orders for the Christians, the Great Commission and the protection that the Holy Spirit will provide His people. And so it makes sense that some well-meaning scribe thought, this can't be complete. I'd like to just add a, a footnote. But some scribe after him saw the footnote and less familiar with the original copy of Mark that this scribe was working off of said, hmm, that looks like it belongs here. And next thing you know, it was part of all the copies down this this one line. So what do you find in in verses 9 and following? Well, you don't find anything unusual or strange. It's nothing that's inconsistent with the Scriptures. You could think of it as a commentary, an ancient commentary in the book of Mark, but it's not inspired. So why am I doing this? Why am I having this remarkable footnote be the first thing we talk about? Well, I'm trying to encourage you, and I'm trying to give you confidence. Because with the New Testament and with all of the Bible, we have an abundance of evidence and an abundance of scholarship and tools that makes us able to have a footnote like footnote 9 in my wife's journal Bible ESV that I borrowed this morning. I mean, this is, this little number 9, teeny tiny nuevo, it is an evidence of God's incredible preservative power. The fact that we have this kind of evidence and tools is reflective of something that if you looked under the hood of of New Testament textual criticism, you would find that the New Testament is the most reliable ancient document you could ever consider. And I don't think that's overstatement. Let me give you just a touch of this. There are almost 6,000, I think it's 5,700-something manuscripts that contain all or part of the New Testament. I'll never forget my first trip to Ireland with my precious wife. It was our 10th anniversary, and we were, we were going to see Andrew Curry and install him in his church. In Ireland, they install pastors in churches the way that a refrigerator repairman installs a refrigerator into 
uh, your home. So an installation service, they call it there. Uh, so we went and did the installation service. And I remember when we were in Dublin down south, uh, we went to the Chester Beatty at Trinity College. This is the most stunning library on planet Earth. You can Google up Trinity College after the sermon and see this incredible, beautiful library. But in the museum next door on campus, there is an exhibit, a biblical manuscript exhibit. And I was geeking out. This is full Bible nerd geek out because I wanted to see P46. P46? You down with P46? Yeah, you are. Nerds. So parchment 46 is this little cutting of Greek letters that is, has uh, some Gospel of John, some Hebrews in it. And it's such an important manuscript because it's very, very ancient. That little torn off piece is reflective of 6,000 other manuscripts that contain all or part of the New Testament. Just to give you a comparison, Josephus, the Jewish historian, and Tacitus, the Roman historian. Josephus, how many copies do we have of Josephus's histories? Well, we have 6,000 in the New Testament. Josephus, 133. No one has any question about the quality or content of what Josephus said. We're, we're, We're quite sure of what he said. We are incredibly, infinitely, exponentially more sure of what New Testament writers said. What about Tacitus? I mean, you can go to UCLA and take a Greco-Roman history class, and they'll talk Tacitus all day. I'll talk Tacitus all day. Probably they'll talk more like history of LGBTQ and Tacitus all day, but sometimes you can find somebody actually teach Tacitus. And, and if they did, they would speak of what Tacitus said with full confidence. Guess how many copies of Tacitus we have? Three. Three copies that were ancient and relatable to that original manuscript. Here's what's wild. Tacitus's copies, the manuscripts we base Tacitus off of, are from the 9th century AD. Likewise, Josephus, the earliest copies we have of Josephus are from the 11th century, the Middle Ages. When it comes to the New Testament documents, the earliest we have is 125 AD. I mean, that's remarkable. I mean, the Apostle John is barely dead at that point. This is just a few decades after this stuff was written. We have heaps of documents, heaps of manuscripts, piles of copies from the 2nd century, the 3rd century, the 4th century. And this remarkable footnote isn't just to pass over and, and to undermine your faith. Instead, it should bolster your faith and say, what an awesome thing it is to know that God has preserved His Word, that He's done it in a way that is beyond compare with any other ancient piece of literature. You ever read the, the Iliad by Homer, by force? Somebody made you do that once? The Bible is so much more reliable as far as what the author actually said than any other piece of ancient literature, whether it's the Iliad, the Odyssey, Tacitus, Josephus, or any other contemporaries, the Bible, because the people were so careful to preserve it, so careful to copy it, so fastidious to protect it, especially in seasons of persecution, we can have every confidence that Mark's ending was at verse 8. That leaves us with the why, huh, 
I'm with the scribe that added the stuff. Why would he end it with such a strange ending? And hopefully that was, that was complete and sufficient. If you want to read more about that, I mean, just, this, is, this is a footnote about a footnote about a footnote. If you want to read more about that, James White has a book on the King James Only Controversy. What a terrible, terrible thing to read about. Um, there are weird Christians in really dark places in the South who believe that the King James Bible is the only inspired translation. I know it doesn't make sense. I know you, you understand that there's no such thing as an inspired translation. That's, that's the wackiest thing you've ever heard. But there's people who believe this. He wrote a good book against that view. Now, I hope you never have to even deal with that view. But the beginning of that book is worth the purchase of the book. He has a chapter on bibliology, where we got the Bible from, that can go through all of that in a lot of detail. So if you were geeking out on that part and not yawning like Riley, then that's your, that's your go-to. Okay, so number one, a remarkable footnote. So what is happening in this text? Let me give you a few more remarkable aspects of the actual ending of Mark. Well, let's say this. Number two, there are some remarkable friends here. And as you remember, Mark functions by way of literary sandwiches, A-B-A kind of constructions, where there is a scene, another scene, and then a final scene that resembles that first scene, bringing focus on what's in the middle. Well, our last Torta de Marco is here, and it is the depiction of the women, and then Joseph of Arimathea, And then the women described again. You can see the women described in verses 40 and 41 of chapter 15, and then a nice section from 42 to the end of 46 uh, about Joseph of Arimathea. And then 47, we see those same three women again in verses uh, 47 all the way through 16, verse 8, as the women are featured prominently. What is Mark doing here? Well, you remember that Jesus died this incredible death, so dramatic, so powerful, a death that he predicted, a death that he laid his own life down for. And at the point of his arrest at the Garden of Gethsemane, all his disciples abandoned him. The only ones that are left in this last scene are women. You know, in the first century, women were not regarded as reliable in testimony in court. This is another evidence that Christianity is true. Uh, A woman's testimony is is, is what we have for the first witnesses to the resurrection. Uh, That's unthinkable in the ancient world. But that's what happened. And that's because when Jesus said to his friends that you will all abandon me, He would be alone on that cross. And after his burial, he would be attended by some unusual friends. The question the reader would be asking is, where are all his disciples? Where are his friends? Where is his family? But there's this tiny group of women who are staying with him. You see them observing the cross in verse uh, forty looking on from a distance. You see them seeing where Jesus' body was laid so they know exactly where to go in verse 47. And then you see them doing that ignoble task of 
covering up the stench of a dead body and preparing for the the process to uh, entomb Jesus and and cover up his body with spices and fragrances in chapter 16, verse 1. Jesus is buried not by his disciples, not by Peter, not by James, not by John. Jesus' disciples have abandoned him, and Jesus' body is buried by a stranger, a stranger and one other man, according to the Gospel of John, Nicodemus, who met with Jesus at night, buried Jesus. They got the body from, from Pilate. They procured a, a tomb, which was sort of a cutout in a, in a cave. And then uh, to get the, the soldiers to, to roll this huge, massive rock, it would have taken several of them to move this thing. And the, the women reference that aspect of the burial, but in his death, Jesus was abandoned by those who loved him the most. And instead, he had these remarkable friends attend to his body. Women who stayed faithful, but who were marked by fear. Uh, those who were on the outside of discipleship, but wondering how this would continue on, like Nicodemus and a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea. These remarkable friends are are portrayed at the end of Mark's gospel for all those who've been here since chapter 1. Mark said this is the beginning of the gospel according to the Son of God, and now he's brought it to a place of conclusion to show you the most dire moment in this entire scene. The culmination of Mark's gospel is the cross in all its saving power. But after the cross, you have scattered and persecuted and ragtag group of friends and followers, similar to those who would have been the first readers of Mark's gospel. Perhaps Mark was very concerned about those who had not stayed firm. Perhaps Mark, like the author of Hebrews, was deeply concerned that there were so many in the early church who were on the brink of giving up that he wanted to show them they weren't alone, that the disciples, too, were, were frail and fragile until the day of Pentecost, that a time was when, when Jesus had no one with him but this group of women and a few strangers who were kind in providing a place of burial. The remarkable friends, I think, all point and signify to Mark's intention to help his audience understand that to be afraid of following Jesus is not unusual, but it's something that has been attendant to the start. It's something that must be dealt with. It's something that must be countered. It's something that must be answered with faith. And so these remarkable friends, I think, show that. Thirdly, there's a remarkable death emphasized here. Pilate asked, they went to ask Pilate, verse 43, for the body of Jesus. Look at the language, the body of Jesus. Verse 44, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died because normally crucified people were left on the cross to be picked by birds of prey. 
But because of Sabbath regulations, because of a desire to kind of satiate the Jews' religious customs, uh, then they died, then before the Sabbath they would take the body down. And so Pilate was surprised that Jesus already died. The scourging must have done him in. And so he confirmed that death with the professional executioner, likely the same one who earlier said, truly this was the Son of God, the one who supervised the execution of Jesus. And look what it says in verse 7, summoning the centurion he asked him whether he was already dead. There's that word again, verse 45. Then when he granted the corpse to Joseph, repeatedly that word dead, body, dead, dead, corpse, is pressed on the reader. The death of Jesus is, has this note of horrifying finality especially in light of the entirety of the Gospel of Mark, to see the person and work and authority and teaching of Jesus in all His wisdom and glorious power as He countered His enemies, as He gently led His disciples, as He compassionately healed the lost, and then to see this great man who moved across the pages of Mark's story, suddenly a corpse, that he is, verse 43, a body, Verse 45, a corpse. Verse 43, dead, 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 dead. And then attended by all these, not theological, but practical burial details about spices and tombs and the procurement of his corpse. Abandoned by his disciples, attended by these unusual friends, buried by a stranger, Jesus is dead. And the reader is left to say, where is he? Where is this glorious man who drove this whole thing from the start? Where is the Mark 1.1, the beginning of the Son of God? Where is the one whose infinite power and limitless wisdom, who confronted his enemies, healed the sick, raised the dead? Where is this man? And so the remarkable death of Jesus centered on the shadow of the cross that Mark has been pointing to for his entire narrative looms heavy over this last scene as we hear beloved and blessed Jesus referred to as a corpse. But this just increases the drama of Mark's remarkable ending. Because now the stone as the women approach the tomb, is rolled away. A sign to them, not of resurrection. It's not our chance to celebrate yet. Instead, they see the stone rolled away, and instantly they had to think, this is desecration. A desecration of the Lord's body, of the Lord's tomb. This is a disturbance of the grave. It's like going to visit your loved one and seeing dirt dug up in a hole. Their precious Lord's grave was disturbed. But then in Greek, this with so much detail, he's wearing, there's a young, he's a young man. He's seated on the right. What What a detail is that? He's over on that side. And he speaks, it's one word in Greek, he is risen. It's not that there's no resurrection in the book of Mark. There's no appearance of of resurrected Jesus, but the resurrection has been everywhere in Mark. 
Jesus has repeatedly referred to his death and resurrection. Chapter 14, most recently, verse 27. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Jesus is alive. He's risen. And this angelic witness tells these women that Jesus is exactly where he said he would be. And then I think as he commissions them to be the first tellers of the gospel, I love the way he does it, verse 7, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. Number four, let's call that remarkable grace. Remarkable grace. John has a whole chapter about it, the, the breakfast and the seaside scene and the charcoal fire and, and the do you love me, feed my sheep conversation that Jesus has to restore Peter. Mark, informed by Peter, doesn't tell the whole story, but tells just enough to remind us and to remind anyone who has ever betrayed their confession of Jesus, who's ever been ashamed of Jesus, anyone who's ever been persecuted for their faith and been feeling threatened that following Jesus was just too costly. Mark portrays this remarkable grace that goes before all his readers that Jesus is in Galilee waiting for them with forgiveness and restoration and individual welcome and embrace and renewal of that relationship of fallen Peter. How meaningful would have this been to a a faltering and persecuted audience to know that Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, has restoring grace for imperfect Christians awaiting them. The angel simply says, he's alive. Let's go back to Galilee. That has to make the reader of Mark go, Galilee? I mean, the, the gospel of Mark was just... Galilee, Jerusalem, Galilee, Nazareth. I mean, he just Jesus going back and forth. Think of all that they experienced in Capernaum and Galilee up in the north by the sea, the calming of the sea, the healing of the demoniac. Jesus is back there, back where they first saw so much of his deity and power, back where they were commissioned to go and tell the gospel. Jesus is awaiting them there. And in the Gospel of Mark, for him to end with this word, verse 8, they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. The astonishment and fear show us what an addition that's clamped on like verses 9 and following can't show us. The style of verses 9 and following is just a mess. You can tell it it just doesn't come from Mark's pen. But astonishment, trembling, and fear are the perfect ending for Mark's gospel. It was in chapter 4 that Jesus calmed the winds and waves, and the disciples were afraid, trembling, and astonished. In chapter 5, the same thing as Jesus cast out demons, the people who witnessed his divine power said, depart from us. They were afraid of him and they wanted no part of him. 
Every time Jesus displays his deity in the Gospel of Mark, there is a response of astonishment and fear. It's why we called this series Surprised by Jesus. So often, Jesus put people on their heels. He shocked them. He sent them into a a place of fear and awe and overwhelming ecstasy at seeing the power of the Son of God. And so here Jesus awaits them at Galilee. And here these women are trembling and afraid and astonished and amazed because the very last words of Mark testify to a, and here's the final remarkable part, a remarkable vindication. A vindication of Jesus' wisdom and love. A vindication of Jesus' power and grace. A vindication of Jesus' salvation. It's a testimony to everyone who would ever read the Gospel of Mark that everything that we need in this life can be found in Jesus, the risen one. That to encounter the divine Christ is to be surprised by him, to be captivated by him, to live in fear and trembling. That sinners must be reconciled to Jesus by the blood that he shed on that cross, the only way to have our sins forgiven. You see, the remarkable ending of Mark is just the beginning. It's a validation and vindication that everything that Jesus ever said is true. That everything that Jesus ever said about what it meant to follow him, the theme verse of Mark 10.45, that he did not come... (coughs) Excuse me. The theme verse of Mark in Mark 10.45, that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Not to be served, but to serve is a reminder of the cost of discipleship. That everyone who reads Mark gospel in perpetuity has to be confronted with this same question. And I ask it to you right now. What will you do with the gospel according to Mark? What will you do with the gospel of God's own Son? What will you do with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? How will you respond to his claims? How will you answer his call to follow him, not just to Galilee, but all the way to the end of the age? How will you respond to his glorious teaching, his death, his burial, his resurrection? Ambivalence, indifference is not an option. Rejection is an option or an embrace of Jesus and all his claims. You see, Mark's gospel finds a perfect conclusion here because the reader is left, though persecuted, though in danger, though perhaps even afraid like these first witnesses, that this is the only place satisfaction for your sins can be found. And that a rejection of Christ after everything that we heard is the most dangerous place you could be. To abandon Jesus is to abandon the cure for our sin. To abandon Jesus is to take God's wrath on yourself, the wrath He absorbed on the cross, the judgment He bore for us. The ending of Mark reminds us that death does not have to be our destiny, but life eternal because of Jesus, the risen one. Friend, if you are not a Christian and you've heard Jesus' claims in this journey through Mark, 
you may not walk away without making a decision. You must either follow Jesus in fear and trembling and joy and forgiveness and salvation, or you must reject him and walk away and live eternally with the consequences of your sin under the right judgment of God. Jesus died in your place and rose from the dead that you might know salvation. That's the offer that Mark bears with us and leaves us with that word afraid. Will you be afraid unto salvation or will you be afraid unto eternal death? The choice is yours. Jesus is sufficient. Be surprised by him. Be captivated by him. Love him and make him your own by faith. Father, thank you for this gospel witness that testifies to the glory and power of the Son of God. To know your salvation full and free on display in the words and work and life and death and resurrection of Christ moves our hearts. I pray it moves the hearts of those who are not believers among us to full and final salvation. Thank you for the encouragement that we can have, the confidence we can have in your word, how trustworthy it is. Thank you for the grace that we see in Peter's invitation, so personal, so individual. And thank you for this remarkable conclusion that leaves the ending up to us, that we would decide what we would do with Jesus. In his matchless name we pray, amen.